Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Optimistic Design, a podcast where we take a practical, positive look at the future of design, ethical innovation, and technology. I'm your host, Wilma Lamb, Design Strategy Director at Substantial. And today I'm excited to welcome Jen Gaze. Jen is a director at High Alpha Innovation, where she partners with global leading organizations to launch new ventures and build venture studios. Prior to High Alpha, she led innovation teams at Wilson Sonsini and Mercedes-Benz and advised leading corporations on issues of strategy and growth at the consulting firm InnoSight. She also serves as a startup advisor and investor with a focus on female-led ventures. Hi, Jen. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Hey, Wilma. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, we're really excited to have you with us. And one of the things that I think is so interesting about your background is that you've been at multiple roles at this intersection of innovation and technology. Could you share a little bit more about how you got started in this field? Yeah, I was very, very fortunate to land at a super interesting company um, right out of undergrad. So my first job was at InnoSight, which was an, there is an innovation strategy consulting firm founded by the late Harvard Business School professor, Clay Christensen. And he's the godfather of disruptive innovation. So he really developed the theory around disruptive innovation and how innovation can impact markets. So that was a really uh, meaningful and powerful education for me to learn about how business and markets work. But more fundamentally, there I learned about the concept of jobs to be done, which is essentially a way to understand people and the problems that they're trying to solve. And then ultimately using that jobs to be done as a foundation for new ideas, for innovation and building businesses. So once once you kind of learn this framework around jobs to be done, you see the world in a different way. You really can't unsee it. And that also is very um, foundational to user centered design and design thinking, which is very much focused on people and helping them solve problems in their lives. So Getting down to the core of those challenges has been really a common thread in in all the work that I've done at InnoSight and since then. Yeah, so you shared how formative that experience at InnoSight was. Um, And I'm also curious, you know, you've had other roles since then. Can you talk a little bit about who or what has influenced how you approach like design innovation, how that's sort of been shaped over time a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I often try to look outside of the business world for inspiration. Um, You know, when you're in it all day, every day, either as a consultant or in innovation strategy at a big corporate, it can be all consuming. You're always thinking about how we could fix things or improve. So I like to give my brain a little bit of a break and look to the art world, look at what's happening in fashion and music in the food industry, that whole space of creativity Um, And the art of creation um, is very inspiring to me. I'm always impressed by people who can kind of go from zero to one and just create something beautiful and meaningful from nothing. And that's really what entrepreneurship is also about, right? You have an idea, a spark of uh, inspiration um, and a desire to change the world, then you can go build it, you know? So there's definitely a common thread there. Yeah. I think this idea of cross-disciplinary like learning and the intersections of multiple fields, I think is very ripe for kind of extracting new innovative ideas. So it's, it's really like interesting that you've brought that up and I'm sure we'll dig into that more in later conversation. 
But I'd love to like hear a little bit more just about what led you to High Elf Innovation and what your role is there now. Yeah, so High Elf Innovation um, was started by a former colleague from Innosite, Elliot Parker, um, just two years ago. So he worked at a venture studio called High Alpha, which was started by uh, executives who sold their company Exact Target to Salesforce um, a few years ago. And they decided to create a venture studio to help support and scale entrepreneurs in the B2B SaaS space. And as uh, they were building this company, they um, got a lot of inbound requests from corporate and universities who said, hey, you know, we have this idea for a spin out or we're thinking about maybe launching a company. Can you help us do that? And they didn't have really any capacity or skills to really work with these partners in a meaningful way. But as this demand grew over time, it was clear that there's a business opportunity here. Um, So Elliot then founded High Alpha Innovation um, two years ago and called me, uh, told me about the model. I was super excited about it. And I joined as employee number four. Now we're um, almost 50 already in in two years, which has been uh, a wild ride. But essentially, we are kind of the, the group that really focuses on partnering with corporate and universities to launch startups. That's our our model um, and our bread and butter. And beyond that, um, we help them create venture studios within their orgs so that they can accelerate innovation as well. At High Elf Innovation, my role is a director. And, um, you know, it's basically as a startup. So of course, there were many hats, everything from training to process development to business development, my main role is to really work directly with our partners and help them through the process of um, developing a thesis about a market, identifying problem spaces that they want to go after, developing new ideas for solutions and businesses, and then ultimately launching a startup to help address some of those pain points that we've uncovered together. So it's about a six month uh, process from start to finish. So you've mentioned a few times in the conversation already that um, High Alpha uses a venture studio model. Um, For those that are maybe less familiar with what this model involves, could you talk about what it means to work in this way and, and how you work in this way? Yeah, absolutely. So the simple way to describe a venture studio is a a structure or an organization that invests and builds new companies. So we're talking specifically about the venture space of venture backable, venture scalable models. And um, a lot of VCs have, have operated kind of as a venture studio. Historically, they've just called it something different, like a platform team. But essentially, it's um, a group that helps come up with ideas and then actually stand up a company, hire an entrepreneur to launch the company. And then they also support that company with kind of the back office function. So finance, marketing, legal, HR. And by providing that model of shared services, it really allows the founder and the founding team to purely focus on strategy, customer development, execution, getting the product 
uh, the MVP set up. So you're kind of removing all the distractions and the administrative burdens that can weigh down a founding team and especially a CEO and really just optimizing and focusing their time on the things that really matter uh, to be able to grow that business and get it off the ground. No, thanks for sharing that. That definitely helps to bring more clarity to how the model works. And one thing I'm also curious about is you mentioned when High Alpha was first getting started, there was interest, you know, in from the corporate side, also interest from universities. So can you talk a little bit about what it meant to sort of establish the venture ecosystem that High Alpha Innovation is a part of? Yeah, so we're fortunate in that we're we're able to connect directly with the High Alpha team and leverage the existing ecosystem that they've created as a venture studio. But essentially, we think about three main components, ideas, people, and capital, right? So ideas are really coming from, um, in our case, our partners, our corporate and university partners. So perhaps at a university, a professor may have some IP that they're looking to commercialize, or a corporate partner has been working on a new software solution that they think could really serve the broader market. So we're having ideas come from from multiple uh, places. That's usually not the challenge. I think the biggest uh, challenge is getting people, right? Finding the right entrepreneurs who are capable and excited about these opportunities so that they can build and, and launch the new companies. The third aspect, capital. Um, so high alpha capital can be a funding partner, but typically our corporate or university partners are putting the first money into these new companies. Yeah. So overall, also, I know there's also high alpha innovations like central mission, which is to partner with the world's leading organization entrepreneurs to innovate through startup creation. So you talked a little bit about you know, the model you use in the ecosystem, but maybe broader level, can you also talk about like the, that mission and what that goal means to you and your team? Yeah. So our, our goal is to launch hundred startups in five years. Um, so that's a pretty, pretty big goal, but I think that we're, we're on our way to getting there and here's how. So if we work with partners you know, in each project, maybe we'll launch one or two companies and that's fantastic. But what we really want to do is create a capability for those partners. And that's the venture studio model. So if we're able to build venture studios with different universities or with different partners or, you know, focused on a specific market, like in healthcare, then we can really scale our model um, and allow companies and our partners to launch uh, startups faster um, and on a more predictable cadence, right? Using this model, so I think it's it's pretty ambitious, but certainly um, an achievable goal. And uh, I'm also optimistic about the fact that there's so much opportunity to solve problems in the world, and, and our corporate and university partners are typically you know, expert in their markets or experts in a certain field, and they can spot the gaps. They can see where the challenges are. You know, they've done the competitive research for us and said, hey, you know, I've been looking for a solution that does X. I don't see it, so let's build it, right? That's why I'm really excited. And I think that our, our big goal to launch so many companies is really achievable. 
So in the focus of kind of launching all these new companies, we're working with High Alpha Innovation as sort of an external partner, so as corporations, but in your previous roles with Wilson Sonsini and Mercedes-Benz, you also have sat on the other side and kind of like a corporate innovation team. So you have experience on, on both sides of that. Could you talk more maybe from the corporate lens of, of what it means to, you know, define new venture creation? Yeah, it's very complicated for sure. Um, and I, I think having the foundational knowledge around the like disruptive innovation theory as a result of working at Innosite helped me think about how to approach innovation in these different contexts. So an innovation is typically not one size fits all. And um, we often advise people to think about it like a portfolio approach, right? So you have different types of innovation and there are different tools that you can use to achieve those, those different types of innovation. So you might consider three broad categories, incremental innovation. So that's you know improving existing products, adjacent innovation, which might mean you're serving a new customer with your existing product or you're serving an existing customer with a new product. And then there's the third category, which is disruptive or transformative innovation. And that's really the type of innovation that uh, I believe is, is best served by the venture studio model. There are a lot of different ways to explore uh, disruptive innovation, but the venture studio model takes the structure of, of uh, driving this innovation outside the core business to allow it to succeed. So I think that's definitely a consideration for innovation teams is what kind of innovation are you pursuing, number one, and then do you have the right tools in place to actually execute on them? So on this idea of do you have the right tools to, to execute on them, I imagine there's a huge difference between what those tools look like and a more you know, typical startup model where it's like a small team, less funding, but also a lot of decision-making power compared to when you're working within a corporate ecosystem, it's a lot more stakeholders, potentially different kinds of fundings. Could you talk also about, you know, additional considerations that you and your team bring in when you're talking to corporate partners about what it means to do venture building within a, a kind of corporate environment? Yeah, absolutely. There's there's so much to learn from this model and, and kind of trying to pursue disruptive or transformative innovation. But what I've seen pretty consistently is that corporates just desire to have a lot of power, influence, and control over everything that they do. And of course, that's kind of expected because that's how they've been able to build a successful business and operate it at scale. But when it comes to building a new company, it's really important for the corporate to actually step back, have less influence and even less ownership actually of that new company in order for it to grow and scale in the venture context, right? So if the corporate wants to put too much of their control over that new company, no outside VC is going to want to touch that. Right. So ultimately, it limits the ability for that new company to have an impact on the market. Right. So if that's the case, then maybe it would be better for the corporate to focus more on incremental or adjacent innovation where maybe that's creating a new business or service line where they have 100 percent control. Right. So you kind of have to make a choice. There's a lot of trade offs in this space of do you want to be rich or do you want to be king, right? How, 
what's more important um, to the corporate and that's often related to what's the strategic objective what are they really trying to achieve and even exploring uh, this new type of innovation so let's say hypothetically and, and we definitely found this to be true in like organizations that we're we've spoken to and work with you know there is a strong desire to to do disruptive innovation, things that are gonna truly change the future of a business or an organization. I think the question is always, you know, well, what actual actionable steps should organizational leaders be taking in order to promote corporate creative innovation that's especially focused in this disruptive space? So you mentioned this idea of, of taking, you know, a step back and creating more space for autonomy. Are there any like specific steps that you've seen um, organizations do that were especially effective? Yeah, I think there there's a couple considerations, and that's I think not to toot our own horn, but I think the venture studio model really really solves some of these challenges. So, number one is corporate DNA is so so strong at NSA. We call it the sucking sound of the core because it just there's such gravity and such a desire to bring new ideas back into the core business. Um, but if you do that too soon, you could essentially kill it, right? So I think recognizing the power of that corporate DNA and then ultimately structuring the new entity or structuring the team to sit outside the core business in a meaningful way. So there's not that, that desire to kind of pull it back in. So that's one thing. Dedicated resources is also critically important. Usually when business is great, lots of money for innovation, innovation teams doing lots of different things. As soon as there's a shift in the market or concern about profitability, the innovation budget is the first thing to get cut. But that's kind of counter to the thinking that well, innovation is something you should invest in all the time, right? Because you're actually building for the future. You're placing a bet today that will materialize maybe in a few years, right? So having dedicated resources allows innovation to be kind of an ongoing R&D function, right, for the org, rather than it being more episodic and kind of dependent on the current state of the business. So Dedicated resources is really important. And then the third thing to consider is around aligned incentives. So that, that means the teams who are actually executing on this innovation or building the new ideas or building the new businesses should not only be separate, should not only have their, their own dedicated resources, but the incentives should be aligned um, to promote that innovation. So they shouldn't be measured by whether they're able to create a profitable solution within six months, they should be incentivized around how quickly are they moving? How quickly are they learning about a new space so that they can really be empowered to take risks, to try new things and experiment in these new spaces. Those are really helpful, like specific actionable steps. I think one one thing I'd like to follow up on, I think especially with the later three ideas of you know, how to have some level of separation with, with the new entity and also dedicated resources and to align incentives is early on, at least in my experience working with organizations trying to do something like this. And, and when I was corporate side, there was always this early question of, should this venture be built internal to the main organization or as a totally separate external 
you know, initiative with a separate funding, separate leadership. How do you think about considering the benefits and drawbacks of like each of those approaches? Yeah, it's it's a tough question. And one we get on almost every project is, you know, should we do this internally? How could we do this internally? Right. There's always that desire for control. And there's no, usually no hundred percent correct answer, but a lot of maybe considerations for people to think through as they're making that choice. A really important consideration is how much is really known about this space? Are we really focusing on pure execution? So is it a predictable market in terms of how the customer will behave? We kind of can have a sense of what the profitability of that model might look like. Or do we have absolutely no clue? Is this a new business that's never existed in the world before? Is it something that's serving a new customer that we're not familiar with? Are we uh, leveraging a new technology and are not sure what the adoption might look like? If there are a lot of questions around the pathway, the model, the business, then it's really about learning, right? So in that case, it's better to have an external team, right? That's when an external new co approach may make more sense, right? So if you can build a spreadsheet, the outcome is relatively predictable. It's kind of more known and comfortable with the core business. That's probably better suited to be an internal entity or business. If learning about, if speed is more important, if there are a lot of unknowns, Typically, that's more suited to be an external, uh, a new company. Thanks for sharing that. And it's it's definitely true. It's one of the first steps out of the gate that's always discussed uh, when working on the corporate side about like, oh, we want to drive disruptive innovation. Should that sit in-house or should that, you know, be a, be a separate group? And how are we going to do that? I've asked you quite a bit about, you know, the, the structure of your organization and the team, but I'd love to also dig into maybe your personal approach and, and how you work with teams and lead teams. And you have a hybrid background that's across strategy, business innovation, lean startup, and user-centered design. And it would be really helpful just to understand how has this shaped your approach to partnering with venture teams? Yeah. The innovation space is really fun because there are a lot of different kinds of people that find themselves in this space and from a, a lot of different backgrounds. So I always find that just meeting these folks and learning from them is, is really special because we're kind of like a, a small community. But I think that is also why we're able to come up with new ideas and pursue these new markets is because we're bringing everyone's bringing a unique perspective to the table. They're coming with different life experiences, different work experiences, and, you know, have a different approach to problem solving. And that's, I think, where innovation can really happen. So I think just kind of finding those people that have those diverse backgrounds that are excited about innovation and optimistic about the future has been kind of what really has kept me in this space is just, it's always about learning and growing and connecting with, with different, different minds. And so when you're, you know, connecting with partners and forming teams, can you talk also about what skill sets I think that you've personally cultivated that are most important for the work that you're now currently doing? Yeah. I think number one is comfort with ambiguity. There is so much unknown about the work that we do 
that it's important to be comfortable with not knowing, right? To be comfortable thinking about how markets might change in the future and developing a hypothesis on how we might impact that future, right? So I think that is really, really important. And I found that I'm comfortable with that ambiguity. And I'm also energized by it because again, going back to the zero to one, you're you're starting something from scratch. You're really starting from a blank canvas. Um, and that's super appealing to me. I think also being adaptable, right? So being okay with being wrong, right? We we come into these projects with a hypothesis about what a new business could look like. We're often proven wrong. And that's that's kind of the point. That's part of our work is what we want to be. We want to know where we're wrong and where we're right. So we're actually building a solution that serves the market. So I think that's that's a great uh, perspective that we bring to the table where, you know, maybe a, a researcher has been working in a field and for 20 years and they're really attached to their work and their research for good reason, but that doesn't always mean that it's a commercially viable solution, right? So we have to kind of bring that practical mindset and say, okay, this is a great IP or great technology, but is it really going to serve the market need, right? And that's kind of the work that we do uh, with them. No, it's really valuable advice. And I definitely found it to be true in the work that I'm doing as well as that comfort with ambiguity is key because you walk into these spaces really having no idea once you go into research or once you've launched a pilot, exactly what the outcome right. could be. Yeah. And, and being open to the fact the outcome may be totally different than what the team had originally anticipated and that that's a good thing. Yeah. Almost, almost always the case. Yeah. And so the other thing that you know, we've we talked about a couple of different categories of things today. You know, we talked about like innovation, both corporate side and venture, but also this idea of how do you incubate new ideas? And then you also have this background in user-centered design. And so I'm also curious, you know, from your point of view, because I think sometimes it's a little bit different for everyone, but how do you see that relationship between incubation, innovation, and design? Yeah, it's almost like a holy trinity, right? Um, where I think there are they all complement each other, right? So at the core of everything, it just goes back to the customer and the job to be done. Who are we serving and what problem are we solving? And then design is the way that you solve it. You can be designing a software solution, hardware, technology. You can design the business model, but that's all kind of wrapping around that problem, right? And then the incubation is... How do we actually bring it to life, right? What's the MVP? What is the starting point? Um, The smallest way that we can begin to solve this problem to get traction and actually build the solution over time. So they're all super, super interconnected and very dynamic, right? You know, in this process, it's certainly not linear, right? It's, you're kind of always testing, learning and adapting. So it's, it's pretty symbiotic, I should say. I mean, you shared a lot of really helpful frameworks and ways of thinking about this kind of work today. If you were to like distill it down into maybe one or two nuggets of advice to give to individuals that are trying to grow innovation, I think especially in large organizations, is there are there any like resources or tools that you think are especially useful to people getting started in this kind of space? Yeah, I think understanding the user-centered design approach is just so foundational. So 
I would certainly start there. But beyond that, to be able to have impact, especially in a corporate environment, you need to have leadership buy-in, right? You can't innovate in a vacuum. And I think finding the senior leaders, whether that's a VP, someone in the C-suite, ideally the CEO, right, who actually buys into the approach, who believes in it, who wants to support it, invest in it, set aside the separate resources, right? Experiment. I think finding those champions within the organization is so critically important and, and basically innovation will live or die by, by those folks. So I think finding those folks, aligning with them and you know, being part of their team is a great way to actually move the needle and get things done. Yeah, that's great advice. I think this idea of having a champion to really, mm-hmm. you know, fight for an idea, give you resources, and also just support you through the whole process because innovation was super fun, can be hard. Oh, <laughs> hard <100%. as> well. <laughs> yeah. to, to get through it. Um, yeah, no, it's been incredibly helpful to get a chance to talk to you, you know, about all like the journey you've been on, everything you've learned. And as always on this show, we like to end with this question of what is top of mind now as you think about the future of design and innovation? And like, what are you optimistic about based on what you're doing? Yeah, so much, so much. I'm optimistic about so much. I think I've been really inspired by a lot of the shifts that appear to be happening and trending towards a more inclusive ecosystem, right? I'm sure you've seen the numbers around underrepresented groups, um, founding teams within the investment community, but that's all changing. The the profile of investors is changing. VCs are also getting disrupted with platforms like AngelList and Republic. Anyone can be an investor in a unicorn now, right? Anyone can benefit from their astronomical growth. And similarly, the profile of founders is, is now changing. So, What's really interesting is that, you know, founders from underrepresented backgrounds often focus on markets that traditional investors would consider to be a niche market. But instead of describing it as a niche market, I would describe it as a huge underserved growth market. So, for example, um, there's a woman who launched a business serving other women who are going through menopause. That was considered by traditional investors to be a niche market. But in reality, half of the population, right, goes through menopause, right? Every single woman goes through this journey. So is it really a niche market? No, it's actually just an underserved market. And there are many, many different examples like this, whether that's, um, you know, skincare for people with different skin tones or, even one of our SOM alum, I saw Stefan Bauer starting a company to serve people with learning disabilities in their um, educational journey. So I'm really excited to see a lot of these underserved markets now being served right by um, innovative founders and investors. So really excited to see where that goes. And you know, ultimately, the end result is more problem solved for more people. You know, and that um, that's really awesome to see. Yeah, uh, we've definitely seen a huge evolution. I think, I mean, even in the ha- last maybe half decade of the kind of like venture capital organizations that have come up and and the kinds of founders that we've started to see, 
you know, have more opportunity in this space. I, I mean, I think one of those core questions that you brought up is like, well, who determines that something is a niche market? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's really changed of, of who are the stakeholders that get to decide that. And yeah, women are half of the population. Right. Yeah. We should not be considered a, a niche market. Um, so I'm curious from where you sit, you know, with High Elf Innovation, the partners that you have, are there any specific opportunities you see to build a more inclusive venture ecosystem? Yeah, absolutely. I think what's really fantastic about the venture studio model is that it is a built-in ecosystem for an entrepreneur, right? So we had this hypothesis around immigrant founders. So a, a lot of the you know corporations or a lot of startups have been founded by immigrants who went through crazy red tape to be able to even function as an entrepreneur in the US. So how can we help you know create a system that allows immigrant founders to be able to start their companies? Right. So that was a venture studio idea that we had at High Elf Innovation um, and we're exploring called Resilient Ventures. So that's one example. I would love to be able to start a venture studio solely focused on female founders. Again, providing access to the services and the ecosystem to allow you know, women, companies founded by women to really accelerate their growth and their journey in a way that they haven't, you know, had before. So I think there are, the model itself could really serve so many different populations. And, and that's really, um, hopefully, what I'll be doing uh, in the future. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing today, Jen. Really appreciate all the insight that you brought and the great conversation. Is there anywhere that people can go to learn more about the work that you're doing and understand it more? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our website, highalphainno.com, we have a lot of great blog posts and articles about the Venture Studio model um, and the work that we do. So would love uh, for folks to go there or also feel free to um, connect with me on LinkedIn. Oh, that sounds great. And we'll make sure to also post those links with our show notes when this podcast goes live. And thank you everyone out there for listening and to follow along and hear more about the most recent releases of our show, head to substantial.com backslash optimistic design. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to Optimistic Design and leave a comment and join us next time as we continue to take a future focused look at design, ethical innovation, and technology. I'm Wilma Lamb, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. All right. Thanks, Wilma. All right. Thank you so much, Jen.